We're just going to do verses 1 through 13 this morning. There will be plenty there. Um, there's a lot here, theologically, biblically, to unpack. And by my clock, I have until about 1.45 before you guys have to be home for the game. So we'll see how this goes. Acts 2, 1 through 13. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there are dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others, mocking, said, They are filled with new wine. Sometimes the announcement of new life and new identity can spread like wildfire and have a permanent impact on an entire community. And I am, of course, talking about gender reveal parties. You may remember a couple of years ago, the California wildfires. Over Labor Day weekend in 2020, east of Los Angeles, a smoke-generating pyrotechnic device was supposed to billow out pink or blue smoke and reveal to the world whether a baby was a girl or a boy. It did billow out smoke and also ignited tall grass and eventually burned several tens of thousands of acres in California. This wasn't the first time that something like this had happened, actually. In Arizona, a couple years earlier, outside of Tucson, an off-duty Border Patrol agent fired a, raf- a rifle at a target filled with colored powder and tannerite. Again, in order to reveal the gender of his child, if it was blue, boy, pink for girl... The explosion sparked a fire that consumed more than 45,000 acres and resulted in 8 million in damages. In September of 2019, a crop dusting plane in Texas stalled and crashed after it dumped hundreds of gallons of pink water over a field in Texas. The pilot and passenger were able to escape minor injury, or with uh, minor injury, and they celebrated there was a girl. We do these silly, stupid things, announcing whether it's a boy or a girl, and sometimes it results in just explosive uh, impact. Sometimes when new life is brought into the world, we want the world to hear about it, and the results can be explosive. Now, here's a weird connection for you. That's true with God as well. He's just smarter than we are. In fact, when he announces or goes public with the the birth of his new people, the result is explosive, and it does spread like wildfire, and 
communities and nations will be impacted. And that's what we start to see this morning in Acts 2. We have the birth of the church, and it is explosive. It is loud. And the nations are going to hear about it. When God brings forth his children and his child, he's going to make sure people hear about it. That's what happens when the Spirit of God comes. What's the result of it when the Spirit of God comes upon God's people? Well, the result is the nations hear about it. In fact, that's my main point this morning. We ask, well, what happens when the Spirit of God comes into God's people and dwells with them? When the Spirit revives God's people, the nations hear good news. That's what we see happening this morning. When the Spirit revives God's people, when the Spirit indwells the people of God and animates them and empowers them and really gives them rebirth, the nations hear good news. This is, in Acts 2, the church's reveal party, if you will. And from the beginning, the church is designed to make noise. We saw that. And it's very commissioning that Jesus gave. You will be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. You are going to be a loud people, a speaking people. And as the church is born, Christ is made known. We think of this section often, Acts 2, the Spirit indwelling and coming upon the apostles and the church going out, we kind of think of this as the birth of the church. This is, uh, you could call it the church's birthday. And it's right to think that way. I would also argue with, with you this morning and to you this morning that this is not only the birth of the church, it is the rebirth of God's people. That this is the revival of God's covenant community. Not just the birth of the church, but the revival of Israel. This might take a few moments, but I want you to listen to Ezekiel 37, 1 through 14. Some of you may know off the top of your head, Ezekiel 37, you might associate that with the Valley of Dry Bones. It's this vision that Ezekiel is given of a dry, barren people. And here God gives Ezekiel a vision of what will happen with his people. So, so stay with me here through these 14 extra verses, bonus verses, uh, that I want to read to you. It says, Ezekiel 37, 1 through 14, The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. And he led me around among them, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I, this is Ezekiel speaking, answered, O Lord God, you know. Then he said to me, prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, behold, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you and will cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live and you shall know that I am the Lord." So I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I prophesied, there was a sound, and behold, a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, 
Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain, that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up, and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel, and you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live, and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will do it, declares the Lord. a vision of a dead people. And the Lord says, I will cause my breath to make you alive, just as God breathed into Adam and formed him from the ground. So God once again will breathe into his people. His spirit will enter into them and they will be alive once more. And then we come to Acts 2. And we find God breathing life into Israel and the church born. And when the Spirit revives God's people, the nations hear good news. That's what happens. First, look at verse 1 of Acts 2 and see that God has orchestrated this day. I'm going to make the case to you that this was no just random happenstance day, that God had chosen specifically this day for this to happen. There's a whole bunch of significance that it happens on this day, that God orchestrates the day of the rebirth of his people. God orchestrates the day. Verse 1, When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. So we know what the disciples were doing, the apostles were doing this time. We've read about it so far in Acts. They're waiting. They're praying. Jesus had given them a commissioning. You will be my witnesses to the ends of the earth, but first the Spirit has to come, so wait for him and pray for him. That's what they are doing. Jesus ascended about ten days ago. Now ten days later, there they are. We're not exactly sure where they are in Jerusalem or which room they may be, and at some point they'll kind of migrate to the temple courts, as we'll see, but we don't know exactly when that'll happen. We're just know, we know they're together, and they're anticipating a coming day. And we know that it is now Pentecost. What do we know about Pentecost? What do you know about Pentecost? Or what might you remember about Pentecost from your Old Testament readings? Pentecost is one of three uh, pilgrimage festivals for Israel. You may remember the other two. The first pilgrimage festival is Passover. What does Passover celebrate? Passover celebrates and remembers that day when God spared his people, Israel, from judgment and delivered them out of Egypt. So they put the blood of the lamb on the doorpost. The angel of death swept through Egypt and judged Egypt. And then Israel, by the grace of God, was able to leave and they were redeemed, delivered out of Egypt. And that's what Passover celebrates. The third festival in the Jewish calendar, which came with a pilgrimage to Jerusalem, was the Feast of Booths, or the Feast of Tabernacles. And that was a festival that remembered the wanderings in the desert and how God dwelt with them in the desert. So they'd set up tents and they'd camp out you know, in Jerusalem. They'd set up 
tabernacles or booths or tents, and they would dwell outside in remembrance of how God had dwelled with them in the wilderness. Between that first and the third, there's another festival, a one-day festival, known as the Feast of Weeks. And the Feast of Weeks kind of came in between the two rainy and harvest seasons of Israel, between those two, after the first harvest, the Feast of Weeks celebrated how God had blessed them with the harvest and anticipated the harvest to come. So it was a, a festival of remembering how God had been faithful and given them fruit. Now think about this theologically. Praising God for giving them the first fruits, praying and anticipating more fruit to come. That was the Feast of Weeks. It became known as Pentecost, Pentecost meaning 50th, because it fell 50 days after the Sabbath day of Passover. Feast of Weeks was celebrated. You can think of a week of weeks, seven sevens, 49 days, 50 days after Passover. So it became known traditionally as, as Pentecost. And there was another association with Pentecost that the Jewish people developed over time. They still celebrate Pentecost for this reason. Do you know what the other significance of Pentecost was? Well, over time, Pentecost became associated with the giving of the law on Sinai. That it was regarded as the anniversary of the day when the Israelites, when the Jews, went to Sinai, where the prophet ascended, Moses. God came down in fire and smoke, delivered his law to his people, and formed them as a community. That is what happened at Sinai, and that is what Pentecost remembered. This is still what Orthodox Jewish people uh, celebrate Pentecost for. Shavuot is the, the day, and it is a celebration of how God gave them his law, his covenant, and made them his people, his covenant community. Now let me ask you, is it any accident that on this day of Pentecost, which celebrates God's first fruits in anticipation for more, and celebrates God's covenant coming with fire and smoke, forming them as a new community, that this is the day God chooses to send out his spirit and revive his people. God had orchestrated this day. That's an important thing to note because what we're going to see here is not something we should anticipate to be repeated forever and ever. This is a significant uh, historical moment in the life of God's people. This is a day that God had chosen specifically to do this thing. That he would give his people rebirth. It's not a day that they could have planned. It's not a day that they could have put on the calendar, a day of revival of God's people. It's why I say now and forever you cannot schedule revivals. And some of you may have had experience that we're going to hold a revival. You can call it a worship service. You can call it an evangelistic service. You can say we're going to schedule it and plan it, and we're going to pray that God would do something. But you cannot put a revival on the calendar because you don't have the power to do that. 
This is something that God orchestrates. You don't have the power to manipulate the Spirit of God into coming. The, the Spirit of God is not a force that you can manipulate. The Spirit of God is a person, the third person of the Trinity, who has a will, and by the will of God comes and, and, and enters his people and revives his people as God directs. So this is what Jesus told to Nicodemus in John 3, right? The wind blows where it wishes and you hear it sound, but you know not where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. This day is not something that they could have planned, but it's the day God chose and God ordained to revive his people. It's not something that can be repeated, but it will have eternal significance. It is the birthday of the church and the revival of God's people. And it's the forming of and reforming of a covenant community. How does God do it? Well, he sends the Spirit. That's what happens in verses 2 through 4. God sends the Spirit. First, God orchestrates the day by his sovereign action, and then God sends the Spirit. Verses 2 through 4. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them, and rested on each one of them. And they're all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So there they are. They're all gathered. They're worshiping together on Pentecost. And then something unexpected and strange happens. A, a sound like wind comes rushing through. Now, those of us who spent some time or grew up in Kansas know what powerful wind can be like, right? We know how ominous and scary that can potentially be, especially if you're in a room. Now, I don't know whether there's an open court setting or a closed-off room, I'm not sure, but in this place, a loud noise, like wind, shook the whole place. You'll notice there that Luke is intentionally using comparative language. He's not saying it was wind. It was a noise like a wind. That's all he can do to, to, to kind of describe what this was. It was like wind. But that thing that like wind represented something else or someone else. And then accompanying that loud wind noise was something even stranger. Tongues divided and rested on each one of them individually and they were, again, that comparative language, they were like fire. Just like the wind wasn't exactly wind, the tongues were not necessarily exactly fire, but they were like fire, having the appearance of fire. The wind and the fire were symbolic of something or someone else. Now, again, knowing our Old Testament, when we hear wind and fire, what do we think? We think of Moses visiting with God in the burning bush, fire. The Israelites being led by pillars of cloud and smoke and fire. Or God settling on Sinai with wind and fire. Exodus 19 says, Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. So when God dwells with his people and his presence is made manifest, it very often, he very often manifests his presence with smoke or wind or fire. And that's what we see here. The Spirit of God, God himself present with them, now come to dwell with his people 
forever. Why is that significant? Why is it significant that God would come and dwell with his people, that the Spirit would descend on all his people? What does that mean? Well, three things, at least, there's more in the Old Testament, but I'm going to point out three things that were promised when the Spirit would descend upon the people of God. One thing that was promised is that the Spirit would pour out on all of God's people. Isaiah 32:15 promised that there would be a day when the Spirit is poured upon us from on high. The Spirit being poured out. Not just a, a, an individual appearance or empowering of the Spirit here and there, but the Spirit pouring out upon God's people. So we talked about this already, but we know that in the Old Testament there are instances where the Spirit indwells God's people. Where there are times where the Spirit will anoint prophets, enabling them to speak the Word of God. Or the Spirit will uh, anoint craftsmen and artists to build the tabernacle. Or the Spirit will anoint kings for rule. There we have individual cases here and there where the Spirit anoints people in the Old Testament. But the promise of the Old Testament, what it looked forward to, was that one day the Spirit would be poured out, not just uh, in an anointing here and there, but poured out upon all of God's people. And that's what we have here. We see that with the, the tongues resting on each and every one of them and them all speaking tongues. That this is a... Uh, an even distribution of the Spirit upon all of God's people, so that all of God's people from now on, if they are the people of this covenant community, they will have the Spirit dwelling within them. And here's the other aspect of that promise. When the Spirit indwells God's people, they will be made new. So Ezekiel 36, 26 through 27, before that Valley of Dry Bones passage in Ezekiel 37. Ezekiel 36, 26 through 27 promises, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. Now remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So God had promised that he would pour out his spirit upon all of his people, and then when that happens, they would all be changed, hearts of stone to hearts of flesh, that they would walk after God and follow him. And that is exactly what happened. As flawed as the church may be, the church has never rejected God and Jesus Christ. There has never been a point in history where God has rejected his church and said, no more, we're divorced the way he did with Israel. The church has been God's faithful people for 2,000 years. Those who are truly part of the church and truly have the Spirit of God, despite all of our sins that still cling, are God's people faithfully walking after him because they have been given a new heart. So that's the second promise the Old Testament gave. And third... The Old Testament promised that when the Spirit would come, God would make a new covenant with his people. And that new covenant would not be like the old covenant. Because the old covenant came with a law written externally on a tablet. But the new covenant would write the law on the hearts of the people. So it would be a, a people-formed 
not by an external code, but an inner compulsion to follow God. God would change them from within and reform them. The old law was given on Sinai with tablets of stone. This law be written internally on hearts. That's what's promised in Jeremiah 31. This is a familiar passage. We've read it before here many times in church. We're going to read it again. And I want you to think about how Jeremiah 31 looks back towards Sinai and forward to here in Acts 2 and connects them and shows us that here in Acts 2 is a forming of a new covenant community, a fulfillment of Sinai, a parallel to what happened then, but now fulfilled here. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, and I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenants they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. That will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. So at Sinai, God established his people by handing down the law from heaven. At Pentecost, God establishes his new people by handing down his spirit from heaven and indwelling them so that each one of them would know the Lord through his spirit. New hearts, new covenant, new people. This is what the significance of Pentecost is. And the sign of it, these tongues, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Here in this context, it's very clear that these tongues are not some otherworldly, heavenly prayer language that no person could possibly understand. There may be a case to be made for that in other parts of Scripture of, of a heavenly prayer language, but that's elsewhere. Here in Acts 2, it is very clear that what is going on is these Galilean Jewish people are speaking in the languages of the world. That is the sign that the Spirit has come upon them. And remember what I said. This is a singular moment in the history of God's people. And I say that because there are some who would say that whenever anybody becomes a Christian, the sign that they have had the Holy Spirit indwell them is that they will speak in tongues. And I would disagree with that interpretation. The book of Acts, and this is something we'll have to be careful to note as we walk through it, the book of Acts is a book of what did happen, not necessarily what must always happen. It's a difference between reading a history book and an epistle like Paul, where Paul is teaching you, here's what I want, here's what you should do. In a historical book, an account like this is, here's what did happen. And this account is specifically, here's what happened on this once in world history day. 
when God gave revival and rebirth to his people, and there was an incredible sign of people speaking in tongues. And we'll see tongues pop up again. More than that, though, we'll see people indwelled with the Holy Spirit. And that'll be the true marker of who and who is not a Christian, is has the Holy Spirit indwelled them, whether or not they speak in tongues. Here, the tongues serve a very specific purpose. And I don't think it's an accident or insignificant that it is tongues. You can think of all sorts of things that could have been represented in that fire that rested upon people. Like the Holy Spirit could have been represented by hearts of fire that rested on people, or hands of fire, or feet of fire, or eyes of fire. All sorts of things could have been represented with fire. Why tongues? Well, what was Jesus' commission? You're going to be my witnesses. This is how you know the Holy Spirit has indwelled and empowered and revived the people of God. They speak about Jesus. This is how the gospel is going to spread all through the world, and we'll see it all throughout Acts. When the Holy Spirit empowers people, speak, and the nations hear. See that in verses 5 through 11. The nations are going to hear the gospel because when the Holy Spirit enters a people, enters a community, the telltale sign, the indicative sign of a spiritful church is that they speak about Jesus and nations here. So we can ask ourselves, are we a spiritful church? And that question can be answered. Are we a church with Jesus on our lips? Do we have the Holy Spirit? Are we speaking about Jesus? Because that's what happens here, verses 5 through 11. They speak, the nations hear the gospel. The nations hear the gospel. Verse 5. Now there are dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. They were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear, each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. So remember, this is Pentecost. It's a pilgrimage festival. People from all sorts of nations are there. These are Jews coming from where they had been scattered to. So they may be ethnic Jews who have been scattered about and now coming home, or proselytes, converts, but people who had converted to Judaism and now coming to Jerusalem there to gather with the native Jews, all celebrating together at Pentecost. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere... Wind comes, fire comes. These group, this group of disciples, 120 or so or more, start speaking 
in all sorts of different languages, and everybody's wondering what's going on. It says they are bewildered and amazed. A couple times the text says that. They, they're in shock and awe of what is going on. This is not something expected. But they're given ability to hear. And this, again, is the spirit at work. There's some people who, who study the science of communication, and, and there's all sorts of theory to how communication occurs. But I think we can basically say that for good communication to occur, three, must, three things must be in place. There are three components of good communication. One, the speaker has to clearly communicate. So that's the first component of communication, is the one speaking. Then second... The message itself, the objective thing being communicated, has to be clear and intelligible. Then third is the one hearing. They have to hear the same thing that the speaker is saying and both agree on what is being said in the middle. So for good communication to occur, all three components must be in line with one another. Speaker, message, hearer. Now here, it seems to me that the Holy Spirit is overseeing all three. The Holy Spirit giving people the ability to speak, the message going out about the mighty works of God, and then people being given the ability to hear in their own language what is being spoken. And they're shocked by it, not least of all because it's Galileans. And there's a little bit of a, a, a jab there. You could hear maybe those rednecks. We actually know from another part of Scripture that Galileans had a distinct telltale accent. When Peter is trying to deny Jesus or deny that he's one of the disciples, somebody says in Matthew twenty six seventy three, certainly you two are one of them, for your accent betrays you. You've got that Galilean drawl. We know you're one of them. So the people hearing are saying, wait, wait, these Galileans, like they haven't gone to language academies, they don't have Rosetta Stone. How are they speaking in a way that we can hear in our own native tongue. They are amazed at it. And then, just consider this. Why were they all hearing in their own languages? This might be speculation, but I would propose that all of them there who had traveled there would have understood Aramaic or Greek. I think they're all traveling there together, expecting to be able to communicate. But they don't hear the message in Aramaic or Greek. They hear in their own language. And I think it's a sign of what is to come with the mission of God. People will hear about Jesus where they live, in their own tongue, in their own language. The witness of Jesus Christ will not be limited to one language or one people or one culture, just as Naz talked about earlier. It will go to all peoples, in all languages, in all tongues, in all cultures, starting here at Pentecost. That God will not be distant waiting for people to come to him, but God will reach out and go to people where they are, in their own homes. And that's what's been happening for the last 2,000 years. So the New Testament has been translated into about 1,500 languages. has been going out into people's own native tongue. Now there's still about 2,000 dialects and languages representing about 350 million people to go. So there's work to do. But over the last 2,000 years, the gospel and the good news about Jesus has been going out to people in their own language. And so I had a good example of this because somebody recently gave me 
a book called The Jesus Book. You may not know what The Jesus Book is, but The, the Jesus Book is the New Testament translated into Hawaiian Creole English. I was going to read a section of it, but I realized that as I read it, it would sound like I was making fun of them, and I don't want to do that. But I will just say, the book of Acts is titled Jesus Guys, and I love it. But you'd read it, and you'd say, oh, this sounds strange, this sounds funny, but it's beautiful because it represents one more dialect that has the gospel written down for them in their own native tongue that they can understand. This is how the message of God is going to go out. God speaks to people in their own tongues, and it does go out to all nations. Those nations are represented here. So these are nations that would have Jewish populations in them. You'll notice there are people from Asia, modern-day Turkey, people from Mediterranean islands, people from the Middle East, people from the Arabian Peninsula, people from Europe and Rome, people from Africa, Egypt, and Libya, all gathered there together to hear the good news, the mighty works of God. It is the beginning of the reversal of Babel. At Babel, people in their pride rebelled against God, and God cursed them by dividing them so they could not understand one another. Here we see the curse beginning to be reversed, and people's differences the diversity isn't wiped out, but is united under the sound of the gospel. God building his people. The people hearing good news. The mighty works of God. We'll see it in the next section next week. But when they're talking about the mighty works of God, I believe they're talking about Jesus and all that he had done and all that God had done through him. They are delivering the message of the good news of who Jesus is and what he has done, and that people are hearing by the power of God. The only question is how they'll respond. So in verses 12 through 13, the people choose a response. People choose a response. This event wraps up, verse 12. All were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others mocking said, They are filled with new wine. Two responses to what is one of the most significant days in all of human history with unquestionable power such that many were bewildered and amazed. Some respond with awe. Others just dismiss it. Think about those two responses. One response is people saying, this is amazing. What does it mean? Like they want to know more. What could this possibly mean? This is significant. We don't know. And so we want to lean in and try and figure out what is the significance of all this. And again, next week, and as we go on in Acts 2 and Peter's sermon, Peter's going to explain what this means. And he'll tell them the significance of this event. But that is one response that you will hear when speaking of the mighty works of God. Some will lean in and want to know more and try and figure out and say, what does this mean? What is the significance of this? Because this means something for me. But you'll notice there's another response. One leaning in with great interest. The other response is total dismissal, mocking it, and in fact attributing it to drunkenness in this section or in this verse. At that time, uh, in that 
day on the calendar, the wine would not have been fully fermented. And it would be a little bit sweeter. So what they're saying is, they got into that unfinished wine and goes down a little bit easier because it's a little bit sweeter and they had too much of it and they're drunk. They're basically saying like they had a bunch of wine coolers. And now they're speaking gibberish. That is how some respond to the awesome work of God in their midst. So I say to you, if you're a Christian, do not be surprised at the mixed responses to the good news of Jesus Christ. Don't be surprised when you are convinced the Spirit is at work, Jesus is being proclaimed, wonderful things are happening, and there's a group of people who say, you guys are drunk and I want nothing to do with it. Don't be surprised. Jesus himself cast out demons from people, raised people from the dead, and there are many who said, no, we reject it. You and I will never give a more powerful sermon than what was delivered here in Acts 2, in the revival of the people of God, multiple, multiple languages being spoken, many amazed and perplexed, and some will still reject it and say, no, I don't want anything to do with it. So don't be surprised at that response. Don't assume that because people reject the message of the gospel that you're doing it wrong. Don't assume that when people reject the church, that the church is at fault. And I say that because I read a lot of literature and a lot of Christian people saying, well, if we only were just better then the world wouldn't hate us. And I want to say, have you read like any parts of your Bible? That's not to say there aren't times and areas in which the church needs to repent and we as Christians need to repent. Absolutely. We have to live lives of repentance and we always want to live more and more faithfully to Jesus Christ. So we always have blind spots, always have things to work out. That is absolutely true. But don't assume just because people aren't responding favorably that we have done something wrong or that the Spirit isn't at work. The Spirit may be at work powerfully, and still people reject. We see that here right at the very beginning. Our job is to pray for the Spirit's help and to speak the message of Jesus. And then to non-Christians, I would say, how will you respond? Mocking is the easy response. Dismissal is the easy response to the message of, message of Jesus Christ. And I understand that. I think we live, probably particularly for younger people, in an age of more and more mocking and dismissal because there's more and more ridiculous stuff said. The more noise there is, the more ridiculous things that are spoken by people in authority or influence, the more the natural response to that will be put up a wall and just dismiss it all. And I understand that response. I'm sympathetic to it. I've got a good streak of mocking in my own self. But the question is, is the message of Jesus Christ something to be mocked and dismissed? Or is there truth in who he is? 
Is there truth in the message that the kingdom of God has come and Jesus is the king of that kingdom? That anyone can find eternal life and rest and peace in that kingdom and anyone can be forgiven of sins and anyone can find reconciliation with God and anyone can lay their burdens down at the feet of the cross because Jesus Christ welcomes people from every nation. That he is reigning. That he has sent his spirit. And that he has drawn people in to find life in him in the midst of a broken world that he will one day heal this world. That is the message of Jesus Christ. And I would encourage you not to mock it, but to accept it and find life in him. If you hear his voice today calling, don't dismiss it. And you say, I don't know how to respond to that. It's really easy. You just say, Lord, I don't... I don't know everything about you, but I think what you're saying is true about Jesus, so help me to believe. Forgive me of sin. Show me what it means to follow you. If that resonates with you, pray that prayer. Talk to one of us. Don't reject the Holy Spirit reaching out to the church this is a reminder we live in the age of the spirit we live in the age of the spirit's power and how do we know if we are filled with the spirit I think this passage tells us when the spirit revives God's people the nations hear good news so will we speak good news to the nations Would you pray with me? Father, we come before you in prayer. We do ask for your help as always. We ask for your spirit. Uh, We know that those of us who are in Christ have been indwelled by your spirit, Lord. We pray that we would be filled with your spirit to speak about Jesus, that people might respond and find life in him. And Lord, if we hear the Spirit this morning tugging at us, compelling us through your word and through Jesus Christ, Lord, let us respond. Let us come to you and say, we are sinners. We need your help. We want life. We want rest and peace and reconciliation through Jesus. Help us to follow you, to live by your Spirit. Amen.